You know, it's hard to believe that we are only 15 days away from Christmas. And I don't know about you, but I'm not ready for it. I'm ready for it for the day itself, but as far as all the other things that go along with it, it's been somewhat an interesting month for us, and actually the last few months. But as we focus today on our upcoming celebration and of our Lord's birth, I want to give you three reminders for Christmas. The first one I'm going to give you today, and then the second one next week, and that the third one will be on Christmas Eve as we have our Christmas Eve service. The first reminder is this, God became man. God became man. Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we're going to focus just on one verse, though we'll share many verses today. But the one verse that we're going to look at today is found in John chapter 1 and verse 14. John 1, 14. And it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That one verse right there gives us the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That God became man. You know, and every time we think about the incarnation of Jesus, we should think about our redemption because it's the atonement that came from the incarnation. In other words, the atonement is the real reason for the incarnation. The whole purpose that Jesus came... And the whole purpose of us celebrating every year at Christmas about the birth of Christ is we're identifying our Savior has come. And in our Savior coming, He has come to bear the sins of all His people on the cross. And so that's what we should be thinking about when we think about Christmas. Yeah, there's a lot of things that that are attractive during this time. It's nice to look at the lights. In fact, our family tradition is usually to pile up in our van and take off and go through the neighborhoods and look at the lights and they are really nice to see and everything but you know all of that pales in comparison to what the day is really about I mean we could talk about the birth of Christ and we should because like I said that's where it all begins when we talk about God becoming man but then we have to understand why he came what was the whole purpose of him coming and the whole purpose of him coming was to go to the cross to bear the sins of his people. So without the incarnation, there is no atonement. We're left with no hope, and the only thing that we can do is prepare for judgment, because that is what would be next. And so when you hear these words in verse 14, and the word became flesh, that should cause your heart to leap for joy, that you're full of thanksgiving because of what it means. Well, let's look closer at verse 14 as we begin to understand this reminder that's given to us this morning that God became man. Notice again in verse 14, and it begins with, and the word. You know, this is the fourth time that the Apostle John uses the term logos, which is translated word. If you'll back up to chapter 1 and verse 1, you'll find it used there. It says, in the beginning was the word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is, in Hebrew, Yeshua. Yeshua the Messiah. 
That's whom John refers to as the Word. He's also referred to as the Word in John 19, 13, when John speaks of his coming back. He said he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's Revelation 19, 13. And I know you have to ask the question, why did John refer to him as the Word? Because, you know, the Apostle John was the only writer of Scripture to refer to Jesus as the Word of God. And he did it here in the Gospel of John. He did it in 1 John, and he also did it in Revelation. But why did he refer to him as the Word? Well, he's speaking to two audiences. One is a Greek audience, and the other one is a Jewish audience. R.C. Sproul says this, During the first three centuries, doctrines of the person of Christ focused... uh, intensely on the identity of the Logos. In Greek philosophy, the Logos was reason or logic. It was an abstract force that brought order and harmony to the universe. But in John's writings, such qualities of the Logos are gathered in the person of Christ. He says in Neoplatonic philosophy and the Gnostic heresy, which is around the 2nd and 3rd century, The Logos was seen as one of the many intermediate powers between God and the world. And then he says such notions are far removed from the simplicity of John's gospel. And he's right. So when calling Jesus the Word, John calls him the embodiment of all of God's revelation in the Scriptures. The word of the Lord was a very significant Old Testament theme, and it was very well known to the Jewish people. The word of the Lord was the expression of divine power and wisdom. For example, by speaking his word, God introduced the Abrahamic covenant. He gave Israel the Ten Commandments. He attended the building of Solomon's temple. He revealed God to Samuel. He pronounced judgment on the house of Eli. He counseled Elijah. He directed Israel through God's spokesman. Um, He was the agent of creation and revealed Scripture to many of the prophets from Jeremiah to Malachi. The Apostle John presented Jesus to his Jewish readers as the incarnation of divine power and revelation. And from that, we learn that Jesus reveals God to man. He judges those who reject him. He's the agent of creation. And he inspires the scripture penned by the New Testament writers through the Holy Spirit whom he promised to send. So let's look at the manifestation of the word. The Lord Jesus in his incarnation. And I want to show you three facts that are going to emerge from this one verse. And the first one is this. And it's at the first part of the verse. The word became what? Flesh. That's the central miracle of John 1.14. The Word became flesh. And we've already stated why that's important, because the Incarnation made it possible for Jesus to die. Again, without the Incarnation, there is no death. And if there is no death, then there is no atonement for our sins, and we're left to our sins and their consequences, and we're left also to their damnation. But think with me for just a moment. To become flesh would mean several things. First, it would speak of a birth. Jesus was born. Now, let me have you to turn to Luke chapter 2. And there's several places we could go with this. But let me just have you to go to Luke chapter 2. And begin with me at verse 1. 
It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So there you hear Luke's account of the birth of Christ. He was born... The same way people are born. The only thing that's different between him and us is the conception. His conception was through the Holy Spirit. You can read about that also in Luke. He was conceived in a virgin by the Spirit. And you know what's very interesting even about speaking of the birth of Christ? In Isaiah 7.14, 700 years before this event that I just read to you in Luke chapter 2, Isaiah spoke about it. And here's what he said. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now that had, that had a far-reaching uh, prophecy there, speaking about Christ. Yes, it had a, a near fulfillment of that when... Isaiah tell, a, tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, and he refused to do that, and the Lord gives him this sign. But how do we know that this is talking about Jesus? Uh, you have some commentators that come along, and they try to say the word virgin. It means young maiden. But you know what? The New Testament writers took that very word and took it as virgin as well. And I know we have, in the Old Testament, we have Hebrew language. But you know what? We also have a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. And it translates it the same way. Not young maiden, not a young girl, but speaking about a virgin, a woman who had never been with a man and never had any kind of sexual relationship. But here's how we know for sure that the Scripture is referring to Jesus when it says this verse in Isaiah 7.14. We know that because Matthew 1.23 quotes this very verse. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew gives us the meaning of Emmanuel. He says, which translated means God with us. That's how they saw the Messiah. God with us. Now, you know, as well as I do, we watch the news, we see the images and that Israel's at war right now. But here's something that maybe you don't know about Israel. Israel's an apostate nation. What do I mean by that? They have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. To reject Jesus is to reject God because God sent Jesus. And as we read through the book of Revelation, we're going to find that they're going to embrace another person who claims to be Messiah. But he, in fact, will be Antichrist. He won't be the Messiah. He'll be one who will operate in the power of Satan. Israel has a rude awakening still coming for them. But all of this is to purge them and to bring them to Jesus, their Messiah. A remnant will be saved. 
as Scripture tells us. But here when we hear verses like this about the birth of Christ, it's telling us that God has become a man. It's speaking of the incarnation. Like Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Now that's speaking about the birth of Christ. Now, when you think about his birth, you've got to think about this as well. And you say, why are you going into all these details like this? Well, there's a reason for it. And to speak of his birth, you have to speak of him having a body. He had a human body, just like we have human bodies. And here's a couple verses for that. Hebrews 10, 5, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. See, that's very significant because there were many of the Gnostics, false teachers, that didn't believe that Jesus came in physical flesh. And that's why you have verses like this there. John deals with this because he was dealing with the Gnostic heresy. Paul deals with this in Colossians with the Gnostic heresy. Over in Hebrews 10, verse 10, it says, By this we all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Again, this is essential for us to understand because no body, no salvation, no atonement, no redemption, no cross. So all this is extremely important. But here's a third passage. <clears throat> and this third passage is an eyewitness account. It's found in 1 John chapter 1. Listen to the first three verses. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now John is talking about Jesus in that verse. He said we heard him, we heard his gospel, we saw him, we touched him. We truly experienced Jesus. He had a body. He was God-made man. Peter also tells us that he died in flesh. 1 Peter 3.18, it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So again, no body, no death, no atonement, 1 Peter 4.1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So the incarnation helps us to understand about his birth, his virgin origin, his divine origin through the Holy Spirit, helps us to understand that God prepared a body for him for the whole purpose of going to the cross and bearing in, in his body our sins. But let me also point out a, a third thing. When we talk about these facts about the incarnation and about God becoming flesh, he had human characteristics. See, there's sometimes there's people out there that don't believe that Jesus came. They don't believe that he was 
either God or they don't believe that he was a man. They believe, some believe, yeah, he was a man, but he was just a good teacher or he was a prophet. Well, the scriptures tell us that in taking on a body, that he also took on those characteristics, those human characteristics. For example, he grew mentally and physically, Luke 2.52. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So he was growing. He also became weary. This body got tired, just like your body gets tired. Mine gets tired. John 4. You remember in John 4 with the woman at the well, it tells us that, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea, he went away into Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So here he is. He's tired from his journey. He sits down at the well. That is indicating human characteristics, right? He got tired. But you know what else? The next verse tells us he also got thirsty. Are you thirsty right now? I am. So I will <laughs> take a drink of water. John 4, 7 says that there was a woman of Samaria, and she came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Why? Because he was thirsty. 100% man. Scripture also tells us some other things, like he became angry, John 2.14. He found, was found in the temple. Those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So he had a righteous anger. In fact, there's another occasion when he did the same thing. But he didn't like the way that they were treating the temple. He didn't like that how they had their shop set up out there in the courtyard. And he said, you've, you've made my house a den of thieves instead of a house of prayer. Other things we see, he became hungry, Matthew 4, 1 and 2. He was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, it says he became hungry. I would have been hungry after the first day of fasting, wouldn't you? 40 days. I've only met one person in my life that told me they fasted that long before. I had to get him to explain to me all the details about it because you know what? Medically speaking, you can't go 40 days without food or water. You'll die. At least that's what I read. But here my friend was standing right there telling me that he did this and told, told me how he did it. It wasn't a 100% fast because he did have water. But there are different types. But here the point is, is that he was hungry. We also know from Matthew 8, 24 that he needed to sleep. There was a storm on the sea. He was in the boat. They were being covered by all the waves. The disciples were in the vernacular freaking out because they thought they were going to drown. And most of them were professional fishermen, had been on the seas in those storms. Guess where Jesus was? He was in the boat asleep. Asleep. 
You remember when they woke him? Lord, do you care that we're perishing? Oh, ye of little faith. Hush. That's what he said to the storm. Hush. And the storm stopped. I think I'd have jumped out of the boat at that point. (laughs) That would have scared me half to death. Another thing we see, he became sad. You remember at the tomb of Lazarus, John eleven thirty five 35 says he wept. You know, I don't find anywhere in Scripture of hearing Jesus laugh. I'm not saying he never did. I'm just saying I don't find it recorded there. But I do find it recorded that he cried. And there's much to cry about when it comes to sin. Scripture tells us that he was tempted. Some people think, well, Jesus could not understand what we go through in our life. He's never experienced what we've experienced, but Scripture says he was tempted. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. See, that also tells me you could be tempted to sin and not sin. You can pass the test. You don't have to give in to temptation. You have to crumble under the trials you're going through, though you may feel like you're about to crumble. God's not going to give you more than you can bear. And I know you're thinking, I feel like I've gotten more than I can bear, and I've had more than I can bear, but God knows how much you can handle. Next, we find that he suffered. Isaiah 53 Verses 4 through 6 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He suffered just like we suffer. He thirsted just like we thirsted. He was hungry just like we get hungry. He needed sleep just like we need sleep. And then, of course, John 19.30 tells us that he died. It says, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, here he's on the cross, and he said, It is finished, to tell us die. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All of these are human characteristics. Every human being experiences all of those things. And the reason why Jesus became a man was so that he could redeem man. He experienced everything you and I experience. But yet he was without sin. That's the word that became flesh. That's what it means when you... When you learn in John 1.14 about the incarnation of Him becoming flesh. Notice also back in verse 14. It says here that the Word dwelt among us. That means several things. Number one, it means that He grew up. Luke 2.40 As we read a moment ago, he continued to grow. He became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. He started as a baby. Then he became a toddler. 
Then he became a teenager or a preteen, then a teenager, then a young man, then a grown man. I mean, the natural course that you and I follow was the same for him. He began his ministry at 30 years old. So he had all that time for 30 years. Something else that we learn, that is, he lived among us. When it says that he dwelt among us, that means he was right there with them. He grew up right there with them. In fact, on one occasion, they asked a question after hearing him teach, Matthew 13, 55, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? He had a family, just like everybody else has a family. And a lot of people rejected him on that basis because they erroneously thought that when the Messiah would come, they would not know where he came from. But you know what? When you pick up the New Testament and you start in Matthew and you find all these places that his father and mother took him, and then you'll see right there in those places as it is fulfilled in, and it'll give you the passages that they were fulfilled in. All of this was prophecy. There were 333 prophecies about Jesus. Majority of them were fulfilled at his first coming. There will be more at his second coming. Zechariah 2.10 says, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughters of Zion, for behold, I'm coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And Jesus fulfilled that. He was right there with them. He lived among them. And not only did he live among them, but he called on people, after he began his ministry, he called on people to follow him. Now, you can't follow someone that doesn't exist. You can't follow someone that's not real, someone that's not in front of you, someone that you've never met, someone that you'd never have any kind of discourse back and forth. Here's some of the people that he specifically said, follow me. Matthew 9, 9. It says, And Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Over in John 21, 22, in this discourse that he's having with Peter over John, because Peter thought that John wasn't going to die, and in one occasion, after Jesus tells Peter how he's going to die, and he says, well, what about him? That <laughs> sounds just like what our kids do, right? You get onto one of them, they say, well, what about him? Well, it says in John 21, 22, Jesus said, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So don't worry about that. You worry about you. You follow me. He called on his disciples, not just Matthew and Peter, but others to follow him. It says in Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And what does he tell them? Follow me. Follow me. There was a man in the scripture in Matthew 19 that many refer to him as a rich, and he was rich, but he was a young man, but he was also a ruler. And he wanted to have whatever Jesus had because he had everything else, but he didn't have what Jesus was offering. 
And so he comes to Jesus and he wants what Jesus has. Well, Jesus gave him what he didn't want to hear. Told him to keep the commandments. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. What do I still lack? And he says, then take what you have and sell it and give it to the poor. Then you come and follow me. The text says in Matthew 9.21 that he had many possessions. He was rich, but he was also controlled by those possessions. They were the God of his life. And I believe that's why Jesus told him to sell what he had, give it to the poor, and then come follow, him, follow me. Get that idol out of your life. That's between you and me. And you can't follow me if that's going to be between us. Scripture tells us that he went away sorrowful which means that he did not follow Jesus. Jesus even told the crowds in Luke 9, 23, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Follow me. See, the Word dwelt among us. He grew up. He lived among them. He even called on people to follow him. And here's one that I want to just say before we move on to the third point. Is that he referred to himself by a particular phrase. You know what that phrase was? The son of man. Why did he use that phrase? In fact, he used it 80 times. Why did he keep saying, I'm the son of man? R.C. Sproul gives us this observation. He says, When Jesus called himself the Son of Man in front of the Jewish people of the first century, they understood that he was identifying himself with that person who was defined and described in the Old Testament book of Daniel as a heavenly being who comes from the very throne of God on a mission to judge the world. Now here's what Daniel 7.13 says. I kept looking in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. See, the people, as Sproul says, would understand that. They would understand that he is Messiah. Yeshua Messiah. So we've seen that the word became flesh. That's the first fact. The second fact we saw is the Word dwelt among us. Notice the third fact. He says in John 1.14, we saw His glory. He says that right there. We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. So, What's that tell us? It tells us, well, His glory was on display. How are you going to see the glory in Christ? You've got to watch Him work. You've got to see Him work. Like, for example, in John 2.11, when He turned water into wine. You remember that? It says, This beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory. And his disciples believed in him. And I, I agree with one commentator who said this, that Jesus primarily did his miracles for his disciples, not necessarily for the crowds. 
The crowds who saw that was witnessing it because he was doing it for his disciples. Again, this verse says that he manifested his glory. And who believed in him? His disciples. His followers. Another place we see his glory was at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus said to Mary in John eleven forty, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And how was the glory of God manifested in Christ? It was when he stood there right before the tomb of Lazarus. He told them to roll the stone away. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And what did he do? He came forth. And then they, he said, unloose him. What that meant was, take the grave clothes off. Release him. Now let me just tell you, little footnote the bummer would be for him is that he'd have to die again he died twice died the first time he, he was sick Jesus raises him from the dead he dies the second time same is true for when Jesus died on the cross it says that many of the tombs were opened and there were those who came forth from the graves Guess what, folks? They had to die again, too. But could you imagine? And we don't have any recording of this. And we don't even know if the Lord would have let them say anything. Because we know in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul was called up to the third heaven. He saw things too wonderful to be uttered, and he was forbidden to speak about it. And yet, we turn on the Christian TV today, and what do we hear? Somebody says they died, and they went to heaven, and they've come back to talk about it. How come you can talk about it and they couldn't? And besides, when we hear what you're talking about, you shouldn't be talking because what you're saying is blasphemy. Like the one guy out in California who said that he died and went to heaven. He just came back, and he wanted to report to everyone that there are no toilets in heaven. Really? That's what you have to say? I mean, that's the first thing you want to tell people? That you don't have to go to the bathroom anymore? See, see what I mean by blasphemy? The sight's going to be so amazing that there will be no words to describe it. And yet, even when we were in Revelation 4 reading that, we're trying to hear John describe the throne of God. And it was an amazing description that he gave, to say the least. But I mean, the writers of Scripture have always had trouble when trying to describe the indescribable. If you don't believe me, go to Ezekiel 1 and 2. And in that chapter, he's describing, as he tells us in chapter 10, the cherubim. And the cherubim were such amazing angelic creatures that were there in the throne of God, and singing his praises with the seraphim. Cherubim seemed to be the ones who were guardians of the holiness of God, if you will. They were pictured on the Ark of the Covenant. They were on the curtains in the temple. The temple was uh, adorned with them. Over in Matthew 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. They went up on a high mountain. They were by themselves. No one else was with them. Matthew 17, 2 says that he was transformed before them. And his face 
shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And then behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. We laugh at Peter, because Peter says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, before you get on to Peter, you wouldn't have had anything to say either that was worth saying. Because that certainly wasn't worth saying. How's that going to happen? And it says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Wow. Don't you understand that when the Apostle Paul was saved in Acts chapter 9 and he heard a voice from heaven? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard to kick against the goads. And you know what? He never forgot about that. And you know what? You wouldn't forget about that either, would you? If you heard an audible voice out of heaven telling you that this is my beloved son, listen to him. I think in our case, we may tend to walk more by faith than anything because during their time, they had the Lord Jesus physically, visibly right there with them. And seeing him display his works would have corresponded with his words and what he said and what he taught. We don't get to, to see his works other than... And I don't want to minimize that, and I want to say less than, because there's nothing less than about this. When we get to see God work in the life of an unbeliever and save him, that is a miracle right there. That's what the Rugrats used to call a miracle. Remember that? A miracle. They would, you know, you, you, you see this incredible thing happen where God transforms a soul takes him from the state of death and brings him into the state of light. Righteousness. Gives him the righteousness of Christ. That is a miracle for sure. And that would bring glory to God, of course. So his glory was on display. And you know what? His glory was also seen in his works. When he taught the people, they were astonished. At his teaching, it says in Mark 1.21, they went into Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath. He entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The, the scribes always quoted other rabbis. Jesus didn't quote anybody. Jesus spoke with full authority. That amazed them. It says in Mark 1.27, they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Which takes us to the next point. When he cast out demons, they were astonished. When they were in the synagogue there in Capernaum, there was a man with an unclean spirit. That unclean spirit cried out and said this, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, Be quiet and come out of him. Now, did he come out? 
Verse 26, throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out. And again, they were amazed. They saw his glory. They also saw his glory when he healed. And you know, his healings were complete. When you take the, the servant there in the garden that Peter pulls a sword out and he swings to cut his head off is basically what he was doing. And Malcolm ducked, but he caught his ear, sliced his ear off. Jesus touches his ear, gives him a new ear. You know, that little scene right there goes by pretty quickly when you read it. And it's almost as if like no one else noticed it other than Malcolm. Or how about when a leper came to him, begging him, falling on his knees, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Mark 141, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand, touched him and said, I'm willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And if you know anything about, a lep about leprosy, that you have parts of your body where the leprosy, I mean, it, it affects all your body, but there are parts of your body that just fall off. Because you have no feeling. So say it's in your hands. And you could have a, have a limb fall off. Some refer to this as Hansen's disease. I tend to know a small smidgen of what it feels like not to have feeling on an area of your body. I have that issue with my feet. And so if I hit things with my feet, with my shoes off, I don't always know what I've done to my feet till I look down and my feet are bleeding. And Teresa asks me this all the time. What did you do? <laughs> That's the common words that she says to me, common question. And I always answer it the same way. I don't know. I have no idea. And of course, seeing his deeds and giving him glory through them, not just through healing, not just through the teaching, not just casting out demons, though those are all amazing things, but how about when he raised the dead? I mean, we, we mentioned Lazarus. He told him to come forth, and he did. That's not the only person that he raised from the dead. There were others. But how about the miracle of him raising himself from the dead? Nobody in this room could do that. Nobody outside this room can do that. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. And his glory, and the last thing I want to say on this... It revealed who he was. He was and is the God-man. You go back to John 1.1. 1, 1. He was the word that was with God and he was the word that was God. He's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. So do you know this God-man? These three facts tell us that the Word became flesh. The Word dwelt among us. We saw His glory. 
In other words, Jesus became flesh, born of a virgin, had all the characteristics of humanity minus sin. He dwelt among the people in Israel. He was born among them. He grew up among them. He was displayed His glory when He taught them, when He healed, when He cast out demons, when He raised the dead. No other conclusion, but the fact is that He's God who became man. You know, there's something else. Scripture reveals to us that He is Savior also. Remember what I said about the incarnation? Without it, there's no atonement. There is no Savior. There's no salvation. So let me ask you this. Is He your Savior from the wrath of God? Is He your Savior from sin? Is He your Savior from Satan? Is He your Savior from yourself? Have you put your faith in Him? As the only way to heaven. He's not one of many ways. He's the only way. And I will tell you right now. If if you never surrender your life to Jesus. You'll never be saved. You will not go to heaven. You have to surrender your life to him. You have to give him your life. You have to make that exchange. I give up my life to have all of his life. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't be saved. It doesn't matter how many times you pray. It doesn't matter how many memberships you have in churches. It doesn't matter how many times you've been baptized or how many aisles you've walked. But if you don't surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you are not saved. So you need to evaluate that this morning. Do you really know him? If you died right now, would you go and be with him in glory? Would you have those wonderful words that I mentioned last week that says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The only way that's going to happen is for you to surrender your life to Him. Call upon His name to save you. Confess Him as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And the Bible says you will be saved. If any of that described you, call on Him right now. Call on His wonderful name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this privilege and opportunity that we've had in your word. We pray that you would open every heart in here today. Thank you for every person here, Lord God, and thank you for the work that is you're doing in each one of us. We pray for understanding of what has been shared in this simplistic message from your word. We pray that you would open up every heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we would embrace him as the only way to heaven, as the only means of salvation, the only way to be forgiven of all of our sin. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I pray that everyone in here comes to the Father through Jesus. Draw their hearts to you, I pray, Lord God. We pray all this in your precious name today. Amen.